If you have a Bible with you, it would have a, uh, be helpful to have it open at Mark uh, chapter 9 uh, this evening. As we look at, uh, in many ways, this strange event, though famous one, uh, that happened in the life uh, of Christ while he was here on earth. And as I say, it is a strange event. Uh, Jesus decides to choose just three of his disciples and he takes them up a high mountain away from everyone else. And while they are up there, Jesus is suddenly transfigured before them. His clothes shine with light. Uh, His clothes, it says, become glistening like snow. Um, And if that's not enough, uh, appearing with him, we see two of the most significant characters in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Uh, And even uh, Peter, who witnessed this, he seems quite baffled by it. Did you notice what Peter said when he saw this Wonderful sight, verse 5. So then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Mark tells us he said this because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Uh, It's generally, I think it's probably always safe to say, if you don't know what to say, You probably shouldn't say anything. But Peter, being impetuous as Peter so often was, he blurts out and suggests this idea of building three tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Uh, He clearly doesn't understand what is going on here. But the truth is, we can be as baffled as Peter. Uh, Do we know what's going on here? Uh, Why did this event happen at all? Uh, It's an event which is recorded by Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, So clearly it's important. And yeah, I expect most of us would be hard pushed to explain why it's important. The crucifixion, we know why that's important, because Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Uh, The resurrection, we know, is important because it demonstrated that his offering, his sacrifice, had been accepted and Christ had conquered death. But his transfiguration, what's the significance? What's the importance? Well, hopefully, uh, by the end of this evening, uh, we'll all have a better idea. And the first question I'd just like to answer is, what was the transfiguration? What was it that happened here? What was its significance? And we're helped in this uh, when we look in each of the Gospels and see the context in which it happened. Uh, Because Jesus speaks in each of the Gospels 
immediately before the account of the transfiguration. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 reads this. Jesus speaks and he says, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Likewise, in Mark's gospel, the gospel we're in, in verse 1 of chapter 9, Mark records, And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And lastly, Luke chapter 9, verse 26, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Did you hear that sentence which Christ says again and again? In each of the Gospels, he says there are some standing here, some who were standing there listening to him, who he said would not taste death till they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And all of the Gospel writers then record about a week later, Jesus takes Peter, James and John up the mountain. Uh, If that doesn't convince you, Uh, We can read what Peter himself said in 2 Peter chapter 1. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter describes many years after this event something of the significance of it. And in 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse uh, 16, Peter says this. He says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what Matthew, Mark and Luke and Peter himself are telling us is that in the transfiguration, on that mountain, before the eyes of Peter, James and John, the veil, if you like, was taken away and Christ was revealed in all his majesty and glory. Now, of course, Christ was always the king. But before this point, He was, if you like, if I can say this reverently, he was a king in disguise. Uh, He was disguised, if you like, as a Nazarene peasant. Uh, We read Isaiah 53 on Friday, and in the beginning of Isaiah 53, it says there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. There was nothing about Jesus, naturally, which made you think, what a great man. If you just looked at him, you wouldn't have given him a second glance in the street. He was an ordinary man on the surface. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, that veil was removed away. 
that veil which was hiding his glory was removed. And Peter, James and John were privileged to see the glory and the majesty of King Jesus. That's the significance of the transfiguration. It reveals who Christ truly was. You'll remember last time we were looking at Mark's gospel and we saw how Christ healed that uh, blind man in two stages. And he uh, spits and he anoints the man's eyes and he asks the man what he can see and he says he sees men like trees walking. And Christ instructs him to look up. And then he can see clearly. And this is mimicked in the life of the uh, apostles. Uh, Jesus asks Peter, who do men say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. But then he rebukes Christ when Jesus said he needed to suffer and die. Peter could see, but he couldn't see clearly. But now here on the mountain of transfiguration... Jesus reveals himself in all his glory and all his kingly wonder before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. So that was the first question. What was the transfiguration? Uh, it was the unveiling of Christ's glory, or his, uh, his disguise revealing his glory, who he truly was. But that leads to the second question, why? <laughs> was the transfiguration. Why did Christ do that here? Why didn't he do it all the time? Why didn't he show his glory to everyone? Why did he just show it to three relatively insignificant people? Well, again, many years later, Peter gives us the answer. Again, in 2 Peter Chapter 1, Peter explains the significance of what Jesus was doing. Verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Uh, to sort of boil that down into... Uh, a shorter sentence. The transfiguration was a gift to Peter and to James and John. It was a gift to them to demonstrate the reality of what they had put their faith in. God removed the veil from their eyes and showed them who Christ was. And many years later, Peter was able to write these words and say, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. This isn't a myth. We weren't deceived. We saw him. We saw Christ 
on the mountain of transfiguration. We saw him glorified. We saw the king. We heard a voice from heaven. We heard God the Father himself proclaim, this is my beloved son. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. Put as simply as possible, the transfiguration was to authenticate Christ to his eyewitnesses. In that case, particularly Peter, James and John. It demonstrated the proof of who Jesus was. But that leads to the third and last question. What does that mean for us? Because we've not seen Jesus transfigured. We've not seen him on the mountain transfiguration with his clothes glistening white. And we haven't heard God's voice declare who he is. So that's all very well for them. But what does it mean for us? Well, again, Peter explains in 2 Peter chapter 1 the significance for us. Uh, Verse 18 of 2 Peter 1, Peter says, We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What Peter's saying is this, is Peter is saying, you can trust us. Anyone reading his words, whether those he was writing to immediately, 2,000 years ago, or we living 2,000 years later, reading his words, though he is long dead. He's saying to us, you can trust us. We saw it. We heard it. We are reliable eyewitnesses that's why he said in verse 16 we do not follow the cunningly devised fables these aren't myths these aren't legends this is what so many people say isn't it uh, in the world if you ask people who aren't believers and scholars and religious students or wherever else and they'll say well the bible it was built up over many, many years, and it was kind of like Chinese whispers, and the legend kind of snowballed, and it got bigger and more elaborate. But Peter says, no, we saw it, and we're declaring it to you. We saw the transfigured Christ, and the apostles, the other apostles could say, we saw the risen Christ. That's the significance of the apostles. Uh, They had to be witnesses of Christ so that they could declare who he was to people living then and to us living today. That's the application for us. You can be confident that the Bible is God's words 
because Christ confirmed it to his followers. He confirmed it to Peter, to James, to John, and to all the apostles. Our responsibility is to listen to what they said. Uh, Do you remember doubting Thomas? Uh, We read, actually, uh, the account of him this morning. Uh, And many people give Thomas uh, a hard time, and they often misunderstand exactly what Thomas got wrong. He did get things wrong, but often people mistake what he should have done. Uh, Thomas, of course, said he wouldn't believe unless he saw the nail prints in Christ's hands and the wound in his side. But John isn't saying to us that he should have had blind faith. Uh, The Bible never commends simple blind faith for no rational reason. Uh, That was foolish. Blind faith is always foolish. That's not what we are asked to believe. Thomas's problem wasn't that he didn't have blind faith. His problem was that he did not trust what the apostles told him. He didn't listen to what Peter and James and John and all the others who had seen Christ risen, he didn't believe them. He doubted them. He said, unless I see it, unless I see it for myself, I will not believe. And he doubted their testimony, even though he had no good reason to doubt it. Why would they lie? Why would they want to deceive him? He didn't trust his friends. He didn't trust the witnesses of Christ. And what did Jesus say to him? when Jesus finally revealed himself to Thomas as well. He says, you have seen Thomas, and so you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because what Thomas failed to do is what we must do today. We must trust the testimony that has been given to us. Uh, We have a whole Bible. Uh, More than that, we have a a New Testament written by people who saw Christ, saw how he lived, saw how he died and saw how he rose again. And Jesus himself commends them to us and says, these are my eyewitnesses. Trust what they have to say. Peter says, we're not liars. We're not deceivers. We can trust what they have to say. say it's interesting if you were to ask someone in the street uh, the average person would say well i don't really believe the bible Uh, i don't believe what the bible says is true and they may make all sorts of reasons like we've mentioned it's just myths and uh, fairy tales and yet if you ask them why do you doubt peter or why do you think john was lying Or why do you think Matthew was making it up? They won't have a reason. 
They won't have an answer because so many of them have not even looked into what the Bible says. They just make a judgment from nothing. And yet on judgment day, God is going to ask us, why didn't you believe my witnesses? Why did you think Peter was lying? Why did you think John was a deceiver? And so many people will have nothing to say because they have no excuse. We can trust what God's word says. God has put his own seal of approval on the men who he inspired to write it. Going back to the account of the transfiguration, uh, did you notice who appeared with Christ? Uh, it says in verse 3 how Christ's clothes were shining exceedingly white. And in verse 4 it says, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Uh, and probably, there's some debate about this, but probably the significance of that is that Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Uh, Jesus, when he talked about the Old Testament scriptures, often described the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. The law written by Moses and the prophets represented by Elijah. And so on that Mount of Transfiguration, you have these witnesses, the Old Testament witnesses, with Christ, and they're obviously revealed to, Matthew, uh, to J- Peter, James, and John, the New Testament witnesses. But notice who they're with. They're with Christ. Scripture is always supposed to be a signpost elsewhere. Scripture always points us to Jesus. Now, if you read Luke's gospel, we're actually told what they were talking about on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we're told they were discussing what Christ would accomplish in Jerusalem. So the law and the prophets are talking with Christ and they're talking about what he would accomplish in Jerusalem. So although the transfiguration authenticates the message of the disciples, we're not supposed to stop with the disciples. The tragic thing is that so many people study God's word. There are many students who spend years in Bible school or studying religion and they know the Bible very well, but they don't find Christ. It's like going on a journey to London and getting stuck at the signpost. If you don't get to London, you've missed the point, quite literally. And Scripture's always supposed to point us to him. Ironically, that's the mistake, probably, that Peter himself made in this passage. Look at verse 5. Says then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, it seems Peter was um, understandably captivated by the fact it's Moses, <laughs> it's Elijah. 
this is wonderful, this is amazing, terrifying at the same time. And he wanted to build tents, make tents, so that they could stay longer, that they could stay with them. But what did the voice say from heaven? What did God say? Verse 7, and a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Listen to him. Moses points to Jesus. Elijah points to Jesus. The apostles point to Jesus. Listen to him. Look at verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. It's no point at all reading your Bible unless you find Jesus through it. There's no point reading Moses, no point reading the prophets, no point reading the New Testament unless you find him. That's what Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, wasn't it? He said to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life and yet they testify of me. But the Pharisees, they took God's words and they rejected Christ. They missed the point. And we need to avoid making the same mistake. Uh, Cornelius almost did it. Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, and he sent for Peter. God told him to send for Peter to share the gospel. And when Peter arrived, Cornelius came out of his house and he bowed to Peter. He prostrated himself before Peter. But what did Peter say to him? He said, don't worship me. Don't bow down to me. There's only one person you should worship, and that's God's. And that's what all Christ's witnesses say. Don't stop with them. Follow through to Christ. That's the significance of the transfiguration. It tells us who matters most, what is most important. As God said, this is my beloved son, hear him. So I trust those few thoughts uh, are an encouragement to us as we delve into God's word, as we listen to God's word as his authenticated message, let's not forget that scripture always points us to him, not merely to his witnesses. And with those thoughts in mind, I've chosen as our final hymn, number 258. And it's a hymn which, again, directs our gaze to Christ himself, the saviour, not just his witnesses. Number 258, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect, uh, perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. So we'll close by singing number 258.